Garen asked me to share a show and tell with you this morning. He is not here, but he has lots of stuff for you to be aware of as we worked through the uh, series on identity. Um, we had these cards available. We kind of ran out of those. We've printed up some more of those. So you might grab one of those on the back table. Um, Garen mentioned last week a few things. One was an inventory or God-centered identity. I know he uh, guided uh, church leadership through this tool and I know I found it very helpful. I have realized a lot of the ways in which my, uh, I live out of an identity that uh, is built on stuff that I can do and not uh, fully on the identity that God has given me as his uh, son. So that would be a useful tool. I would encourage you to grab one of those on your way out. Also, as we think about living out of an identity in Christ, it's great to know what God's word has to say. So there's a handout with lots of scripture reference that, that teaches us who we are in Christ. And then I didn't notice this until second service. Lisa wrote, Garen's handwriting and Lisa's handwriting, not all alike. I should have noticed this for first service. Lisa had written on my post-it note, all of this stuff is available online as well. So just make yourself available to those resources, grab a hold of those. This morning, I want us to, to come together and look at God's word in Psalm chapter nine. And as I think about what we're going to look at in Psalm chapter 9, there's something that has always been true for my life, probably been true for 50 or 60 years, I think. If you uh, think about culturally, just in the world that we live in, if you say um, that you are searching for answers, that you are looking for some kind of truth, uh, there's a sense of a cultural acceptance and approval if you're looking for answers. You might hear people use phrases like, I'm spiritual, but not uh, religious. I'm searching for meaning. I'm looking for answers. I'm on a personal journey to find meaning. Those phrases, those ideas have kind of some cultural acceptance. It's, it's valuable to be looking. Uh, I was just kind of curious. So I Googled the phrase uh, songs about uh, seeking or searching. And here's what I found. You can find Motown, folk songs, rock songs, country songs, blues songs, that all talk about a search for meaning, a search for some kind of significance. So whatever it is that you like, whatever is your genre of choice, someone has written a song that, that, that proclaims, I'm looking for an answer. I'm looking for some kind of meaning. That is acceptable. But I think there's very little cultural acceptance, cultural approval for seekers who would say, I have found what I was looking for. And that's exactly what David does in Psalm 9 that we're looking at this morning. He proclaims, he celebrates, he sings that in times of trial and difficulty, I was looking and I found the, the truth. I was a seeker and I found the answer, the one who was worth the search. There's one thing that you remember this morning that you, I would encourage you to try to hold on to. It would be this, the character of God is what makes him worth seeking for in the midst of difficulty. So we're going to look at Psalm 9, several ideas in Psalm 9 that I want to, to show to you. The first one, as we look at Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8, would be this, the Lord who is outside of our way of understanding is good, right, and fair in all of his judgments. Let me read for you from Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8. Here's what it says. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne 
for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness. He judges the peoples with equity. So David begins and he says, the Lord, and when when we read the Lord in Psalm 9, David is using the, the most holy personal name for God. He says Yahweh. Yahweh, the, the one who is um, ultimately holy, but also um, intimately close to us. This is the God who exactly knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. He has prepared a throne, a throne that endures eternally, where he will make the wrongs of this life right in his perfect timing. And his throne of judgment is for his people. Well, sometimes we can read about judgment. You can read about God's righteousness and interpret that as like God is a, a bearded, a long, white, bearded, kind of grumpy guy who his judgment has to do with his zapping us, his putting us in his, uh, our place. And that's not what I believe David is saying. I believe David is saying that his judgment is upright, it is perfect, and it is for his people. His is not a, a temporary kingdom. It says that his is a throne, a kingdom, where even when our thoughts and our emotions might call these truths into question, is he good? Is he forever? Is he on our side? Um, I was thinking about this. One of those handouts that Garen has for us, based on these last several sermons that we've been talking about, says, the truth that is, is loudest is not always the, the one that we should listen to, but it's the, the voice, the truth that is most fully true, that, that is completely right. And so in Psalm 9, David says that there is a throne that lasts forever, and God presents his perfect judgment from it. He will reign until this world and its ways all fade away. He rules the earth as the only source of perfect moral decisions. Now, in thinking about how we can understand that more fully, I always try to think of a, uh, an illustration of some sort or another. The best way that I know how to illustrate this truth is to think of its opposite. To think of a, a place where there is rule, where there is rain, and it is flawed. So I want to tell you about my house. Um, in my house, this is kind of the area, my family, where I have some measure of authority, some measure of rule. It's not much, but it's some. And I want you, if you are especially are a parent, to think uh, along with me. We, we praise God as we think about these words. We uh, understand that God judges with perfect fairness, that he's always right in his judgments. But imagine if it weren't that way, if it were not so. So don't raise your hand, but parents, how many, just think about this. If you raise your hand and your kids are sitting next to you, They'll have some uh, fodder for argument later. Don't raise your hand. I'll raise your hand, uh, a hand for you. Raise your hand if you're me. If you have made mistakes in disciplining your children. In your reign and rule, you have gotten it wrong. You've made an imperfect judgment. Maybe it looks like this. Um, hypothetically, you take away a privilege from your son when it's actually your daughter who is the one who broke the rules. Maybe that's happened at your house. It's happened at my house for sure. Uh, I want to give you some sense of how I am flawed in my rule and reign. 
the other day. Uh, we have a dog. We've had a dog for about eight months now. I think it's a picture of our dog. This is Lottie. Um, this will make sense in a minute. The only uh, reason to pick a good dog name is if it's a name that you can yell out the back door, right? Um, so Lottie was not a name that we chose. It doesn't fit that that one rule. It's kind of a, it doesn't just like come out of my mouth as I yell at her to quit digging in the backyard. The animal shelter had given her that name, so it seemed like she's been using it for a while. We'll stick with it. So Lottie is our dog. has been in our house for about eight months or so. Um, Lottie has a couple of bad, Lottie has many bad habits, if you ask me. We love her. A couple of bad habits that I need you to know about this morning. She has a bad habit of eating the trash whenever she can find it. She has a bad habit of eating stuff out of the recycling bin, which can't be good for her. Uh, she has a bad habit of eating the, the rabbit's food if she can find it. And so she eats all the stuff that she's not supposed to eat, which means she throws it up when she's not supposed to throw it up. Now, I'm not sure if it was that situation exactly, uh, she, if she had come in from the backyard kind of muddy and then started to run off down the hallway. Whatever the situation was, I, as the one kind of right next to her, yelled out a word of correction to our dog, but I didn't use her name. I can't remember which one of my kids' names I used. I yelled out, Olivia, Annalie, Samuel, Lottie. In my one sphere of great influence, I don't get it right. I yell out a word of correction at the dog, but I use the name of my, my sweet children. What's wrong with me? Um, well, the same thing that's wrong with you, the same thing that's wrong with all of us. I do not rule my home with perfect righteousness and equity. I am deeply flawed in my judgment in these little, in this like, you know, silly way, certainly. But in a million other ways, I am deeply flawed in my righteousness. I don't get it right in my own judgment. And I am deeply thankful that the Lord is not like me. That in all of his judgments, in all of his ways, he is righteous and perfect. Anytime we look at a text, I always want to come away with some kind of application, point by point by point. So how do we apply the reality that we worship a God who is perfectly righteous in his judgments? What does that mean for us? How do we apply this truth? One thing that I think it means is that we, if we are followers of Jesus, can never seek vengeance about wrongs brought against us. It's not our job to make things right. It is a perfect father who makes things right on our behalf. I think so one way that we would put this into application. There's no need for me to lose sleep, for you to, to, to toss and turn in our desire to make things right when we've been wronged by someone else. We don't need to live for that. Instead, we leave that in the hands of our Lord who is perfect in his judgments. If anything should cause us to lose sleep, it's not a desire that, that the scales would be set in our favor or that we should try to make things right. I think the thing that should cause us to lose sleep is when we recognize our own sin. When it confronts us, we bring it to the Lord in the discipline of confession, and then we sleep soundly trusting in his great mercy. He's perfect 
in his judgments. And that part of his character should cause us to seek after him. Second thing I want you to see in the text is in Psalm 9, verse 9, that the Lord is our defense in times of oppression. Here's what verse 9 says. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed and a stronghold in times of trouble. For those who are oppressed, the language says oppressed, you could understand as crushed, afflicted, then the Lord is a refuge. He is a retreat. He's a stronghold. He's a high tower. He is our defense. For followers of Jesus across the globe, throughout history, there is a peace knowing that in fellowship with him, here's, there's a refuge. Now, our oppressors might be different from the oppressors of King David. David writes Psalm 9 when the pursuit of, of Saul, who had become a, a maniacal king, he had been pursuing David. When that pursuit came to an end, when David was finally done with Saul's pursuit, he writes Psalm 9. So our our uh, oppressors might not look like a maniacal King Saul. They might not be in the form of, of tanks and missiles. Our oppressors are, are probably much more likely our own uh, thoughts, our own lives that are sometimes uh, upset by our anxieties, our stress. Maybe your oppressor is someone at your workplace. Maybe your trouble is found inside of your own family. Those are all appropriate things to bring before our Lord, who is a refuge, he is a stronghold, he is a high tower. Ukrainian pastor Vasily Osteri wrote this week that he was not ready to evacuate Ukraine with his family as the Russian army invaded. He wrote for the Gospel Coalition these things. He wrote, the church may not fight like a nation, but we still believe that we have a role to play in this struggle. I'm convinced that if the church is not relevant in a time of crisis, then it's not relevant in a time of peace. If you're a leader in a nation under attack, then the words of verse 9 are going to have even greater significance, aren't they? These words that the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trial, that brings this perspective that it is the Lord not nations, not politics, that will be your stronghold. In terms of application, in all of our troubles, the Lord is our refuge. It's found in Christ. As we know him more and more, we learn about his character, and we trust him to be our stronghold. Third thing that I want you to see in Psalm 9 is in Psalm 9, verse 10, that the Lord is seeking us and he invites us to seek after him. Here's what verse 10 says. Those who know your name, trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. When we seek the Lord, he is there to be found. Maybe that seems kind of like a basic truth, something that we would hear or take for granted week after week at church on a Sunday. But it's not something that I want to take for granted, that when we seek him, he's there to be found. I would say it this way. There's no guarantee that I can make to you this morning that if you spend time in God's word and you spend time in prayer, that there will be a guaranteed answer to all of your problems and struggles. 
but darn it if it's the closest thing I know to a guarantee. I wouldn't give you something in, in a level above that that trumps the truth of that reality. When I think about this idea that when we seek God, he is there to be found, that stands in contrast to what every other religion, every other religious book would teach you. You see, our God doesn't tell us to just be quiet and follow the rules. Some of you might have grown up with that idea, but that's not an idea that comes from God's word. God doesn't teach us that we should lose ourselves in, in meditation and contemplation and, and disappear into the, the world that we live in or a great big universe or a force. God is not annoyed with us. He doesn't want us to, to be quiet and settle down. God doesn't teach us any of these ideas, but the gods of all of the other religions say, just obey, disappear, fade away. But our God says to us, the one true God says that in seeking after him, we might just turn towards him and seek him for the joy of being in his presence. That's what our God desires, that we would simply find joy in his presence to learn about his heart and his character. I remember years ago when I was in seminary, uh, another seminary student, we were in a preaching class together. And here's the exciting, let me paint this exciting picture of seminary. A dozen not so good uh, wannabe preachers taking turns preaching sermons. They just would listen to other guys preach their sermons and maybe you'd make some notes, good illustration. The rest of this was bad. You know, we would make those notes about each other. The professor would give us feedback. Good times. Maybe I've talked some of you out of ever going to seminary now that you know what it looks like. One of my peers, preaching a sermon in preaching class, preached a sermon that said, essentially, we have to, to follow God out of this duty, a sense of responsibility. He kind of had some, some militaristic illustrations, kind of like going to boot camp. We have to follow God because it's our duty. And our, our wise professor at the end of his sermon reminded us all that following God is not something that we do out of duty. It's not the same thing as making your bed in the morning, doing your chores, doing some push-ups to make sure that you're, you're physically healthy. It's not a duty or an obligation, but it's a profound joy. Seeking God should be like falling in love. Seeking after God should be like finding a cool drink on a hot summer's day. Seeking after God should be like winning the lottery. Where do I get these three weird ideas? From God's word, God's word, and God's word. That we read in the, the Song of Songs about romantic love, and it teaches us some great things about love and marriage, but it's also teaching us that the, the imagery of love and marriage, of intimacy, is about the bride and the groom, the church and Jesus. When we read about how the deer pants for water and you are the one who quenches us in a time of, of thirst, we can read in the Gospels, Jesus tells us this story of uh, the gospel, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price or a treasure hidden in the field. And in hitting the lottery and finding this great treasure, the person in the parable runs and says, I'm going to give up everything I've got to get that treasure because it's so valuable. So seeking after God, it's not a duty, it's not an obligation, 
It's like falling in love, a drink on a hot day, or hitting the lottery. I told the first service, I'll tell you as well, don't come at me after my sermon to tell me about how the lottery is bad, because I'll tell you even more how I agree. But you get the idea, right? I see people in the gas station putting their hard-earned, uh, probably their social security checks, towards trying to hit the lottery to get something for nothing. Here's something that's so much greater, and what's required is that we would recognize that God is seeking after us and that we would respond by seeking him as well. One of my goals in putting this passage before us this morning is that we would all be more willing in the days ahead to seek Jesus more fully by simply sitting in his presence as we come to the Bible, as we come to prayer. Um, have you ever been so busy trying to accomplish tasks and worrying about life's demands that you miss the little joys that are right here in front of you? And it takes someone kind of reminding you to, to see beauty, to see the good things around you. I was thinking about this, and, and I thought of something I hadn't thought about for, for many years. Um, I thought about something that happened when I was on my honeymoon. Lisa and I were in Hawaii, and it was the evening. We were waiting in line to go to a restaurant. So we're waiting in line outside, and um, the sun begins to set. As the sun begins to set, I saw you know, dozens of people doing the same thing that I'm doing. They, they see the sun you know, melting away into the Pacific Ocean, and they get out their phones and their cameras and kind of rush to this great spot to take a picture of this beautiful sunset. And I was reminded that that happens every single day, and I miss it. It happens twice a day, if you count sunrise and sunset, that there are beautiful things that happen if we have eyes to see them, right? A sunrise, a sunset, a beautiful flower. Now, you might, we might kind of have to have some conversation about is there a difference between the sunset in Hawaii and the sunset over the Flint Hills? Uh, the point that I want to help you catch is this. I want to be the person who seeks out the beauty of God in his perfect character with joy and with expectation, even if I've become accustomed to it. Even if I've been doing it for a long time, I want someone to remind me to seek after the things of the Lord as they happen day after day after day and not miss his beauty, not miss his desire to, to be found. Last thing I want to share with you is this. I am a fan of what I would call 99-cent theology. Here's what I mean by that. I would encourage you, even this week, to go buy a 99-cent notebook at the dollar store or Walmart, read the Bible every day this week, Write down in that cheap journal your observations, some application, things that you need to start or end. Write down some prayers in that journal. It will only cost you 99 cents. Second piece of 99 cent theology. Now, I haven't shopped for, for note cards recently, but I'm going to go out on a limb and you can find one for close to a dollar. Come home with a pack of 100 note cards. And as you're reading each day, find a verse that really impacts you that feels like you have seen the sunrise or the sunset for the first time as you're reading God's word, and write down that verse. Stick it in your pocket. Here's a helpful hint. Stick it in the same place where you keep your phone. And then every time you're pulling your phone out to check whatever it is you check, you have to like 
wrestle with this note card that has a verse of scripture written on it and look at it and read it. And I imagine that before you know it, you'll have it memorized. It'll be a sunrise, a sunset, some beauty of God's desire to be found sinking into your heart. Third piece of 99 cent theology. Step three, carve out a little bit of time in your day and buy a fountain drink or an iced tea or some cheap bad coffee, whatever, pick your poison, and be still with that before the Lord. And in the time that it takes you to drink a drink, don't say anything, don't ask God for anything, but listen to be still before him and push distractions, the, the to-do list, the things that cause us to be anxious, all of that stuff, the striving out of the way and be still before the Lord. Listen to what he has to tell you that before that you've been too busy to hear. Let me pray these things for us and we'll be done. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you have seen fit to, to reveal in your word the goodness of your judgment. I thank you that you are eternal, you are perfect, you are righteous in your judgment. Cause that, that part of your character to draw us closer to you. Father, I thank you that you are a stronghold in times of trouble. Whether our strongholds, are, our troubles are literally a, an enemy who pursues us, or a, a thought that we know is not healthy that pursues us. Help us to find a refuge in you that's stronger than every other resource that we have available. Father, I ask that, that you would guide us in seeking you. We know that it is true that you are already seeking us, but Father, I pray that you would remind us that, that we would be able to seek you, and you're right there, ready to be found, ready to reveal the truth and beauty of who you are more deeply, more fully to us. Father, I pray that we would be inspired this week more than perhaps ever in any other time in our lives to seek after your wisdom and truth and your word and prayer. Father, I ask that you would do this in our community of believers and do that in such a, a profound way that people would recognize that this is a group of people who have found truth and meaning in you and not in anything else. Father, I pray that that would change the workplace, change the school, change the, the people around us. Father, thank you for these truths and thank you for your word. Amen. That's your assignment and your homework for this week. Have a, a wonderful rest of your Sunday.